by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing uh, an effort in California that looks to cut insulin prices and whether or not there's a chance for that to succeed. Also going to be discussing uh, different issues facing global health and going to be talking about the dishonest way that Western media analyzes and covers sanctions against Venezuela. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Whenever a politician says that a piece of legislation isn't perfect, but it's a start, or it's not perfect, but it's progress, that's a signal to me that it's actually not worth much at all. That's how people are describing the bipartisan legislation that 10 Republican and 10 Democratic senators came up with in regard to gun control. And what's in the legislation that people are celebrating is significant, I guess. There is significant funding to help states create new red flag laws. But remember, 19 states and Washington, D.C. already have these laws on the books, but they will also be eligible for funding to improve the effectiveness of their established programs, whatever that means. The legislation includes major investments to increase access to mental health and suicide prevention programs and other support services available in the community, including crisis and trauma intervention and recovery. It includes the so-called boyfriend provision, which would keep anyone who was in a serious dating relationship and was convicted of domestic violence from owning a gun, as opposed to limiting the prohibition to those who were married to, lived with, or had a child with a partner they've been convicted of abusing. The National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or the NCIS, would have to also contact state and local law enforcement to search for any disqualifying mental health or juvenile records to provide more stringent background check of gun purchasers between the ages of 18 and 21. The definition of licensed firearm dealer is said to be expanded so that more gun sellers will have to register as such, which would mean that they would have to conduct background checks on all buyers. And of course, the legislation provides more money to help institute safety measures in and around primary and secondary schools while also supporting school violence prevention efforts and training for school employees and students. And while these are not bad provisions, to be sure, they won't solve the problem of gun violence in this country. Because what good is increasing access to mental health and suicide prevention programs in a capitalist health care system that makes consistent mental health care unaffordable for most people? People can't even afford insulin in this country. How is this going to help? It's great to provide community-level crisis and trauma intervention and recovery, but if the crisis is capitalism and the trauma is poverty, what resources are being provided to address them? That's not in the legislation. The boyfriend provision is certainly important, especially since it was dropped from the Violence Against Women Act earlier this year when the conservatives balked at it. But does it cover law enforcement? Because the one profession with the highest prevalence of domestic abuse is 
law enforcement, where it is found that cops abuse their spouses at 15 times the rate of the general population. Some studies estimate that at least 40 percent of U.S. cops have committed domestic violence, although the thin blue line in the culture of secrecy and intimidation make it hard to get firm statistics and help to the victims. Still, if cops' spouses and their families are excluded from the protection of this boyfriend provision, it's not worth anything to them. I'm not sure that having NCIS or any federal agency determine what mental health issue is disqualifying is helpful since most people with mental health issues are not violent at all. So on what basis would they make such a determination? And unless the crime in one's juvenile record is assault with a deadly weapon or murder, what would be disqualifying in one's juvenile record, which are supposed to be sealed? Why bother with juvenile records at all? Why not just raise the age of eligibility to purchase a firearm to 21? Private gun sellers would still be able to go to gun shows or through informal sales and sell items from their collections without having to register as a firearms dealer. Thus, no background checks would be required for them still. And how many times do we need to see cops fail to protect children before we stop funding more cops in school? Because that's what the safety measures in and around uh, primary and secondary schooling is about. Many will say that this legislation is a major departure from conservative recalcitrance on any gun legislation reform, and they'll celebrate that. But if I could sit here in less than 10 minutes and point out the serious shortcomings in this proposed legislation, then surely the smart and highly paid people on Capitol Hill can come up with something better than, well, it's not perfect, but it's progress. And maybe we need to raise our expectations above accepting any incremental progress on gun reform and any and everything else and demand actual change. Follow Luke My Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke My Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points and you listen to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers, co-founder of Popular Resistance and director of the Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign. Dr. Flowers, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for uh, inviting me to be with you. Great to be with you. Absolutely. And Dr. Flowers, uh, the administration of California Governor Gavin Newsom is uh, aiming to get the state involved in producing its own insulin in an attempt to uh, severely cut prices for this very important uh, medication. And while it certainly seems unnecessary to say the very least, given what we know about uh, insulin prices and uh, the dangers uh, that it poses for it to be out of reach, for people. Um, it's not entirely clear, you know, how some of the details of it will play out and how it will actually be made available to people. And so what can you tell us about this uh, plan in California to produce insulin and how are you seeing it unfolding up to this point? Well, thanks. I mean, I think the fact that they are 
realizing that this is something they need to be looking at speaks to the severity of the crisis that we're in. And it's not just with insulin, it's our entire system and and all of our pharmaceuticals. You know, people in the United States pay up to 10 times higher prices for pharmaceuticals here than people in other countries uh, spend because we don't have an actual healthcare system. Um, so, you know, it's, I applaud them for like trying to do something, but as usual, it feels a little bit like, you know, like you said, we don't know how it's going to roll out. Um, this is one piece of the problem in terms of making, you know, insulin affordable for people. It's not just the pharmaceutical company anymore, but there are all these middle people involved these different pharmacy benefit managers and the retail outlets and all these other steps. And it's not clear, you know, in the end, is this actually going to result in lower prices and making insulin more affordable for people? It's also years out. They're partnering with a private corporation, you know, to start making it. So how is that? Is this just going to end up being another kind of state bailout, for, you know, or, you know, padding the, the profits of a, of a private corporation? And it just is, you know, again, it's like trying to put a Band-Aid on a on a gaping wound when there are solutions that we have that would not just impact people's ability to get insulin, but to get all the health care, you know, that they need. And I think that is at the crux of the holdup with this plan, because the drug manufacturer that California state officials are partnering with to distribute insulin haven't answered key questions like how cheaply insulin could be produced and what patients would pay. And I feel like, Dr. Flowers, that that's the question nobody, the drug manufacturers, that's the question they don't ever want to answer publicly. Because once we find out how little it would cost them, it really does cost them to make insulin, we'll start wondering why we're not paying much less already. And then there would be this revolt against you know, particularly insulin uh, manufacturers. So, I mean, just that part of the holdup in the negotiations, I think is very, very telling, Dr. Flowers. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I mean, the fact that's kind of like the whole point, isn't it, right, of this whole thing? Like, are people actually going to be able to afford uh, and have access to the insulin that they need? And if we can't answer those questions, then it starts to raise a lot of doubt about, you know, how serious is the pharmaceutical company about doing this? And, you know, of course, if California does this, California is a state that has an, a huge population equivalent, I think, almost to the entire country of, of Canada. If, you know, if they start doing this, are other states going to start doing this? Is the federal government going to start looking at you know, this as a potential solution, I'm sure that the pharmaceutical industry is not happy about this at all. Yeah. And uh, a part of me wonders if that may very well impact this effort. And I just wanted to give people an idea about what's happening in terms of the cost of insulin right now. I mean, I was reading this in um, an article about just this issue in the Los Angeles Times, and it says, quote, the price of insulin has soared in recent years. A 2021 U.S. Senate investigation found that the price of a long-acting insulin pen made by Novo Nordisk jumped 52 percent from 2014 to 2019, and that the price of a rapid-acting pen from Sanofi shot up about 70 percent. The investigation implicated drug manufacturers and pharmacy benefit managers in the increases, saying they perpetuated artificially high insulin 
prices. And, you know, I feel like that that really says a lot. And I think as you mentioned this earlier, um, Dr. Flowers, about uh, the the clearly the need for there to be some kind of a, a cost cutting measure. And the Newsom administration uh, seems to think that um, if they're able to get this up and running, it could cut costs to uh, ensure spending by as much as 70 percent. I mean, they say that, quote, there is no guarantee, though, um, that this uh, will come to pass. I mean, recently, a state assembly member, uh, Blanca Rubio of Baldwin Park, said at a recent hearing, quote, who is going to write the prescriptions for this magic insulin? Hope is not a strategy. I'm not hearing any strategies as to how this is going to become available. So even while they're hashing this out, Dr. Flowers, as you note, I mean, what we see with insulin is just so indicative of um, uh, 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 sort of the healthcare system and certainly a big pharma as we understand it in general. And it put people's lives in danger. I mean, people have to ration their insulin and do all kinds of things that they otherwise would not have to do if this. Uh, important uh, uh, medicine was available. And, you know, if if, if diabetes uh, isn't properly treated, I mean, you know, uh, people can go blind, they can have limbs amputated, they can have a, a serious damaging impact on organs. I mean, you know, if, if, if not treated correctly, it can really have uh, uh, an impact on people's lives. But as with so many other things, people's actual health and wellness are not uh, centered as a priority in this conversation. But as always, it's just, you know, making a buck or maximizing profit, which to me seems like a commentary on the state of uh, the healthcare system itself. You know what I mean? No, exactly. Exactly. You know, those prices didn't rise because production costs went up. They didn't rise because they decided to start treating their employees better. They rose because they could get away from it. And that's away with it. And that's our entire healthcare system. There's no rational basis for the prices that we pay for healthcare goods and services in this country. It's only what they can, you know, get away with. And it's much higher than what people are paying in other wealthy countries, countries that have healthcare systems that cover everybody and have better health outcomes and longer life expectancies. I mean, having a system works. And in the United States, we have the opposite of that. We have this very predatory, profiteering, uh, you know, whatever type of healthcare that, you know, it's very not transparent and everybody's trying to get in on it. So you have this whole new pharmacy benefit benefit manager thing where, you know, we're putting more middle people, more administrators, more executives into the system that's already totally overburdened with administrative people so that they can start to profit from it, you know, in the guise of holding down costs always and, uh, you know, and take their cut from it. And so meanwhile, healthcare costs go up. Uh, people can't afford to get the care they need. And, you know, it's not just the long-term impacts of not having access to insulin. Those are serious and impact people's ability to care for their families, to have a decent quality of life, to work, but also death. You know, not being able to have adequate access to insulin does cause people to die. That happened to a, a friend of mine, and I didn't realize that he ha- was struggling. You know, it's not something he talked about, that he was having you know trouble affording his insulin. But you know, insulin is one piece. There are lots of other medications that people need that they don't have access to. So it feels like this is a good thing in terms of putting a spotlight on the crisis and a potential solution, which is we should take the profit out of the pharmaceutical industry. We should take the profit out of the healthcare industry. Why do we allow people to get wealthy at the expense of people's lives? That makes absolutely no sense. 
to think about it. If we had a national improved Medicare for all or a national health system, prices would go down dramatically right away because you would have a single system with, you know, that all of these companies would have to negotiate with and that system would be able to set the prices because that would be the only avenue for them to reach their customers. And everybody would have access. So suddenly now, instead of just, you know, marketing to the wealthy and the insured and those who can afford it, you know, everybody would be able to get their medicines. And so that would, you know, increase the demand for it. So this is a win-win in a lot of ways. It just means that the profiteers wouldn't be as wealthy as they are right now. Yeah. What you just mentioned about, you know, people not talking about uh, not being able to afford their their medicine, you know, that that is the other part of this capitalist system and, and the way it shames people into silence over not being able to survive in this capitalist system. Like we we are we're so embarrassed to, to ask for help for being, you know, to get help to get our medicine. But the fact is nobody should have to if we didn't have a for profit system. System. And even with the state of California, Dr. Flowers, uh, partnering with companies like uh, uh, Cost Plus Drug Company, which is Mark Cuban's company, which he he said that he created it to uh, uh, provide low cost drugs online, but it's still uh, at wholesale plus a 15 percent markup. So still, Mark Cuban makes money off of somewhat less expensive uh, uh, prescription drugs, but still that means that you, you have to have the money to afford them, uh, to afford that 15% markup. And what about all the people who don't, Dr. Flowers? Right, right. And, you know, and that's another perverse aspect of our health care in this country is that, you know, who are the insured in this country? Mostly it's the people who are employed uh, because they get it. Many of them get it through their employment. Many of them don't. So what happens when you have a significant health problem and you depend on your job for your health insurance? You know, people end up, you know, when they, uh, you know, when they can't work, when they get something, you know, they have a catastrophic accident or catastrophic illness and they can't work. Now they've lost access to that care. And, you know, this is a time when they need it the most and it's taken away from them. It just, it makes no sense, you know, and the other mind boggling piece of this is that, you know, just looking at our entire population and the poor health outcomes that we have in this country compared to other countries, this is not because we're unique in any way, you know, that our population is unique. It's, it's a systemic problem. Um, but look at, you know, what would our communities be like if everybody had access to the care they needed, if people could be living healthy lives and could be productive and active in their communities and caring for their family, you know, and what, what, what would that look like? It would be amazing. I just, I was in Toronto and I saw homeless people there and I compared them to the homeless people I see in Baltimore and the homeless people in Toronto were healthy. And I said to somebody, you know, like, this is amazing. I'm not seeing such sick people as I see on the streets of Baltimore. And they're like, well, we have a universal health care system. So even when they don't have a home, they can still get the health care that they need. Yeah. And, you know, what I think is also important to say, uh, Dr. Flowers, is that, you know, while, you know, this may be a good idea from uh, the government of California, ultimately, you know, it's going to take a, a mass movement uh, to really uh, uh, bring about the kind of health care system that we need uh, in the United States. Because, I mean, if we leave it up to officials, well, it's hard to see the situation getting any better, you know. 
Right. And I want people to recognize that we could do it right now. We don't have to wait years to do this. We have a national system in place through Medicare. We could expand it to every person right now, expand what it covers, and then we could work from there to continue to take the profit out of our healthcare system and make it about people and health. Absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing about this capitalist system, it it, it can have a dampening effect on people's uh, political imagination to where we don't even realize all the resources and the strengths that we have at our disposal right here, right now. And I agree that uh, given the seriousness of the situation, we need to start building sooner rather than later. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Flowers, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're discussing issues in global health, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Anna Vrachar, a journalist with the People's Health Dispatch. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for asking. Absolutely. And Anna, there's an ongoing issue uh, in the World Health Organization concerning uh, uh, corporate lobbying and how it can influence uh, the positions of different entities within the WHO. And in this case, I want to talk specifically about uh, the position of the United States and U.S. corporations on a a lot of these things as well that can have a a serious negative impact on uh, health outcomes. And I was hoping you could sort of break down what this corporate lobbying looks like within the WHO and what are some of the impacts? Uh, Yes, of course. And I think that uh, when you speak about uh, corporate lobbying uh, on the U.S. positions at the World Health Organization, uh, there was a recent report which was uh, done by Catherine Ross and a couple of other authors who's looking particularly into this uh, and the first analysis of its kind. So uh, what they did was uh, they went through uh, the reports uh, on how industry and more specifically the breastfeeding, uh, so the the breast milk substitute industry, uh, the uh, ultra-processed foods industry, the alcohol uh, industry, uh, spends money uh, on lobbying uh, U.S. delegates who are going to the WHO. And so, of course, uh, you know, we do know from before that uh, the WHO has been weakened mostly because of the way that it's financed uh, and it's basically not getting enough money from its member states. So it was forced also to, let's put it that way, uh, put the guard down a bit and then uh, start getting donations from other sources as well. So in this case, you know, we're talking about uh, philanthropic organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and so on and so on. Uh, and, you know, this has undermined the, the place that the WHO holds in the world because it makes it less independent. It makes it less less capable of acting, basically. 
Uh, and of course, you know, the big industry is quite uh, quite prone to notice these things and it's prone to uh, push for those things uh, and to use the space that it's being uh, that's opened uh, to push for their positions. Um, so we have seen, you know, in different uh, in in different aspects of public health. So when it comes to ultra processed foods, when it comes to alcohol, the WHO has had a very difficult time passing some of the policy that was on the table. Uh, and that's also related to how the industry has uh, has responded to that. And so uh, this kind of shift uh, or change in the WHO, we, which we have seen, uh, it's called multi-stakeholderism, which is opposed to uh, the multilateral organization that WHO is supposed to be, so which relies on the discussions among its member states, which takes into consideration the different needs of these member states, uh, and instead lets in all these different well, so-called stakeholders who have their own private interests. So, you know, when you have big industries sitting on the uh, at the table, they're not there to represent the, the interest of the people. They're there to represent their their own interest interests. So they're for to push for their own profit. And so, uh, what this recent report shows uh, is that there has been a gradual increase uh, in the lobbying amounts that have been spent in the U.S., particularly since uh, since 2016. So, you know, uh, if uh, the report quotes that, uh, for example, in the period from uh, 2006 to 2015, uh, there have, has been a little bit more than 12 million U.S. dollars spent on uh, for these purposes uh, and then growing growing to 14.2 million dollars uh, from 2016 to 2019. And then finally to up to 46 million dollars in 2020 alone. The 2020 benchmark is also quite kind of important, which the report also notes, uh, because it corresponds to when the Trump administration announced that the U.S. would leave the WHO, it would quit quit the financing. And so, you know, the report breaks down and you see that there are some organizations which are not in the industry organization. There are professional associations of doctors, of health workers, of patients uh, who are uh, lobbying for the U.S. to stay in the WHO because the WHO plays such a key role uh, in global health. But then there are other uh, other people, organizations, uh, who are allocating these resources to actually weaken the WHO further and to find uh, a place, uh, place for themselves. Yeah, and I feel like <clears throat> this 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 concept, this distinction uh, between um, multilateralism and multi-stakeholderism is important because, I mean, as you say, Anna, it's the difference between this kind of critical and serious uh, discourse and discussion uh, between the entities that that have as their chief priority uh, the best health that outcomes, as opposed to the, the stakeholderism, which is chiefly concerned with maximizing profit. And uh, a little earlier. You you mentioned, um, you know, a number of different um, issues and in industries that, that that have a role in this. And uh, a part of that, uh, as you said, was the, the breast milk substitutes industry. And there's a direct connection to that and what we're experiencing here in the United States right now with uh, uh, the shortage of baby formula. Here is the United States, the, the richest country on Earth, doesn't have enough formula for its babies. And so I was hoping you could uh, expand on uh, uh, this issue issue with the breast milk substitutes industry and, uh, you know, how you see it connected to the formula shortage in the U.S. and what that means for mothers and children. Uh, yeah, so of course, uh, so I'm not expert on the U.S. Uh, living in Europe. It's, a, you know, much, uh, much easier position for me to speak from. But 
basically, uh, there have been reports and analysis already uh, on what is happening with the baby formula shortage. And basically, it has a lot to do with the approach that uh, different administrations in the U.S. Have, have chosen before. So, you know, it has the using of baby formula and relying on baby formula instead uh, on breastfeeding. Uh, it has uh, a lot to do also with how labor policies work and with how work is shaped. So, you know, it's... Um, to breastfeed, women not only have to be physically uh, in the position to, to breastfeed, but they also have to have the time. They have to have a maternity leave after they give birth. They have to have flexible jobs, you know, flexible working time. That's a better better way to put it. Uh, so they can, uh, they can find the time during the day to breastfeed. Uh, and uh, you will know this better than than I do, but uh, I think that the U.S. does not does not provide for this time for most people, especially for working class and poor people. And so, um, what has happened was that uh, the people uh, from these communities and also from the black community uh, have been just pushed towards using baby formula, and this has been supported by the marketing practice of uh, of the producers of baby formula. And so, you know, um, there are currently global mechanisms which should deal with how uh, breast milk su substitutes are marketed. Uh, but we have seen also from previous reports by the WHO uh, that these are also these mechanisms are being undermined all over the place. So the industry still has quite a bit of access to people, uh, to parents who are getting ready to, you know, who are making decisions. Uh, on how how they're going to feed uh, uh, their babies, and the industry is taking very good, you know, making very good use of this space. Um, in the U.S., I would say they have been, you know, very <laughs> uh, very successful uh, in making most of it because they basically secured only a couple of companies uh, have secured one extremely large part of the market, and so you know when. I believe that one uh, one of the problems problems which was, uh, that were quoted uh, uh, in the case of the of the formula shortage was the closure of one of uh, one of the one of the factories, and so um, basically I have come across uh, some some data that indicates that this company actually held one fifth of the whole U.S. market. So um, you know. This kind of reliance on a very few selected companies uh, in parallel with not having any alternatives, well, for specific groups of people when it comes to uh, to breast milk substitutes, it's clear that it leads it can lead to problems like this. So uh, this was also something that was actually said by representatives of the industry when they met with uh, with the Biden administration, and they said that. The instant that the the Abbott factory uh, said that they would have to close down, the industry knew that this was something that was going to happen. On the other hand, uh, it seems that the government was not aware that uh, the problems that this would cause would be so uh, so enormous. Hmm. Yeah, and you know it's clear that uh, the lobbying of these private corporate entities uh, have caused serious health problems, uh, global uh, food chain problems, and the report is quite damning. But what has been the response 
of uh, the WHO, in particular the United States delegation, in response to the report in making any changes to this practice? Basically, when it comes to the WHO, the WHO does have formal mechanisms of dealing with the conflict of interest and of dealing with industry. Uh, and more specifically, it has this mechanism, which is called PENSA, uh, which is short for Framework for Engagement with Non-State Actors. Uh, it was uh, brought into practice quite recently, actually, about uh, four or five years ago, if I'm not mistaken. But the issue with PENSA is that it's, you know, it's, uh, it's porous. So it doesn't offer the necessary protection for the WHO to actually um, shield itself from the impact of the industry. And in, in that regard, the one of the few things that can help the WHO to oppose this, these positions is, of course, having member states who are themselves ready uh, not to walk the line that the industry is uh, often is pushing them to walk, but also to have a stable stable basis of financing for itself. So, you know, if, um, as I've said, the financing mechanisms of the WHO has been, uh, has been shaky for some, quite some time now because the proportion of the funds that come from the member states and which are funds that the WHO can use freely. So, you know, it, it can say, okay, we want to... We want to finance strengthening health systems uh, instead of saying we want to give all the money for uh, health security, which is something that uh, corresponds with the agenda of the global north. So because these free, let's call them free, uh, resources are lacking, there has been a bigger reliance on funds which are earmarked and which have to be spent on specific purposes. So, you know, you, because of this, you get a very, very big disproportion. Some programs can have a lot of more money than they actually need, while others can have not enough even to cover the basics. So, uh, you know, if you want to push the WHO away from industry, you have to secure this basis. It has to have enough funds, which comes from its member states, uh, which allow it to work in the way that it thinks it's best to work. Yeah, and another issue that I was interested in, Anna, is <clears throat> the World Trade Organization, which, um, as we speak, is having its 12th ministerial uh, conference that uh, began on the 12th and will end on the 16th. And the trade delegates there, uh, I think, are expected to pass um, a COVID-19 decision that seems like it may be a way, basically, for the WTO to save face after, I mean, a pretty extended period of uh, negotiation negotiations that uh, seem have gone awry and, uh, uh, you know, basically seemingly really failing to, to suspend sort of harmful trade rules uh, in terms of, you know, uh, pandemic uh, response and things like this. And so I, I was hoping you could tell us about that and what's happening with the WTO here and what their pandemic response ha ha has looked like. Sure. So the WTO conference, it's an interesting topic, actually, because it's, you know, it's uh, not only about the TRIPS waiver, which is uh, something that uh, India and South Africa have uh, tabled at the organization uh, almost two years ago uh, in an effort to secure like more equitable access to all COVID-19 medical products uh, in the global south. But it's also focusing on issues that 
are related to food security, like agriculture and fishery subsidies. So there's a lot on, mm, there's a lot that the WTO is discussing, but it appears that it's the negotiations are not going so well, uh, and that there is no consensus on basically any of the topics that I that I just mentioned. Only a couple of hours ago yes. today, the delegates uh, and the WTO secretariat had decided to extend the duration of the meeting uh, in order to try and find a compromise. But now uh, the way it's shaping up to go is that uh, it's, it's basically looking more and more like a failure because even if the delegates do come up with some kind of declaration or statement, uh, anything of this kind, it's actually not going to offer any concrete answers to any of the things that they have been discussing. And of course, the TRIPS waiver uh, or the decision on the WTO response to COVID-19 is one of the, well, basically one of the fields where they have uh, they have failed very, very badly. So, you know, they have been discussing this since all, since the very early phases of the pandemic. They had a very comprehensive text uh, in front of them. Uh, it was a text which was backed by more than 100 uh, members of the WTO, uh, many of those members, of course, from the Global South. And now what happened was that it faced enormous uh, backlash from the global north, so mostly by the European Union, uh, and uh, now in recently uh, when uh, when the alternative decision, which was actually um, drafted and then shared by the DG uh, by the WTO Secretariat, in this case the UK and Switzerland came in and made the or attempted to make the text even worse than it was before. So we can start by breaking it down in some key issues or elements. So one of the things which first comes to mind when we speak about this WTO uh, version of the decision on COVID-19 response is that it's only about vaccines. And, you know, in practice, it's not only about vaccines. Uh, it is also about access to medication. It is also to access uh, about access to testing. So there's there's a lot of elements which the rich countries in the WTO want to avoid in, in order to basically protect the interest of the big corporations that are based in these countries. And so we have seen that the decision was only about vaccines, but then. It's also the original decision was about lifting some parts of intellectual property privileges. So it was not only about patents. It was also about um, the privileges that companies use to deny access to data from clinical trials they do, for example. And this is all important because different, different kinds of intellectual property privileges apply to different phases of production of the product. So, you know, you need to leave them all in order to be able to actually produce the thing. But now what the decision is saying is that it's only going to be about patents. So it's not going to address any of the other things and it's going to actually make it hard even to lift the patents because it's not going to say, oh, it's only, mm, it's about one patent. 
in order to use the decision in you uh, in order to make you know to to allow better access to to the vaccine you will have to list all the patents that apply to all the components that are used to make the vaccines yeah definitely well we thank you so much anna for joining us today we're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc we'll be right back so please stay with us by any means necessary Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about dishonest coverage of Venezuela sanctions by Western media. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ricardo Vaz, political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. And Ricardo, when we talk about uh, sanctions aimed at Venezuela by the United States and others, I mean, we're talking about something that has really a devastating impact on the people inside Venezuela. And, you know, I know that uh, numbers can differ depending on who you ask. I know that back in 2020, uh, former U.N. Special Rapporteur Alfred DeZayas estimated that 100,000 people have died in Venezuela as a result of these sanctions. But if one were to read the uh, corporate news media in the United States, you don't really get a, a sense of that impact as sanctions are often uh, minimized, whitewashed, and, and uh, analyzed uh, uh, really uh, absent any context. You know what I mean? And leaving the reader, I think, with a skewed impression of how these things really play out. And you recently published a piece about this for uh, FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, entitled Calibrated Dishonesty, Western Media Coverage of Venezuela Sanctions. So, Ricardo, how have we seen Western news media a, a sort of cover sanctions, and how does that stack up against what we know to be true? Yeah, I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, as a, as a journalist and as someone living in Venezuela, I always find outrageous. You know, we, we have this policy that has killed tens of thousands of people. I mean, it's very difficult to have estimates. The, the one more reliable one is from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and Mark Weisbrot and Jeffrey Sachs estimated that 40,000 died in the first 12 months after the, you know, let's call it the first big sanctions in, in the middle of 2017. So that's 40,000 in 12 months, and sanctions have only gotten worse since then. So it, it's really, it, it, 100,000 must be conservative by now. And so here you have a, a policy that is designed to inflict pain on, on Venezuelan population and we all we know that it's always the most vulnerable who get the worst of it. And then on the corporate media, you have this terrible coverage that exclusively portrays it from the prism of, of U.S. interests. And because of, of the corporate media's uh, interest in, in endorsing U.S. foreign policy, the, these journalists, and we can call them quote-unquote journalists by now, developed all sorts of tricks, I mean, some of them blatant, some of them more sophisticated, 
to either justify sanctions or minimize their effects or, or not talk about the effects altogether. So, I mean, whenever I read this, this coverage, uh, the first reaction is always outrage, but, but I'm, I'm very grateful to the to the people at Fair. I'm sure they'll, they'll be listening, uh, the editor Jim Norakis and, and his team, because they, they uh, always help me with their editing process in, in, in being very rigorous and not falling into the same uh, low standards that characterize the media coverage. So everything here is well documented. We look for the contradictions. We look for uh, how the media is uh, distorting reality, what, what's being left out of the picture to try and complement what you were saying. You know, readers are, are left with a very skewed uh, perspective on, on, on what these sanctions have meant. And, and we try to, to explain what, uh, how that's a, a misrepresentation. So recently, I mean, that, that opening in terms of sanctions, which, I mean, I guess we can talk about it in more detail, but that was just a, a platform for the corporate media to expose some of its more more blatant biases. I mean, just, just, just to give you an example, and that's where the title comes from, there's this uh, habit of just allowing U.S. officials to say whatever they want unchallenged. So basically, it's just an open mic for them. And the the ones who, who are always anonymous, by the way, who, who talk to the media said that, you know, there's this opening, but we are going to calibrate uh, sanctions depending on uh, what how we evaluate the, the results of supposed talks between the government and the opposition. So this is something that I find very dehumanizing. And I mean, we can go back to all the manufacturing consent. This is a way of dehumanizing the, the victims of sanctions, right? Because you talk about a policy that is killing thousands of people as, as a kind of dial that you can move back and forth. And I mean, when you talk about it like this, it's a, it's, it's a way to, to ignore that this policy has, has real victims and it's having victims all the time. And so that's why I went with this calibrated dishonesty headline. Yeah, and and just the fact that the effect of the sanctions and who the sanctions are actually targeted are not talked about honestly. I mean, they're always talking about, you know, Washington uh, always talks about how it sanctioned the government and the media parrots that line, but they don't talk about that they're actually um, causing economic hardship toward the people uh, of Venezuela. So they are literally sanctioning the people. We also don't get the full a scope of when, you know, the, the Washington decides to ease one sanction. They'll say things like, oh, the U.S. is easing some sanctions or easing a few economic sanctions. And that's not really accurate either, because we didn't have an accurate picture of the totality of the sanctions to begin with. So what does it mean when even the uh, media tries to put a positive spin on uh, removing some sanctions, that's really not uh, the case when it comes to the effect on the Venezuelan people. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And actually, the thing that drove me to write this piece was a piece on, on Bloomberg, where Juan Gonzalez, who is a White House advisor for Latin America, something to this effect, said something like, uh, you know, removing sanctions is not going to improve the lives of the Venezuelan population. And, you know, I found it just so absurd that, you know, removing sanctions is virtually the only thing that the U.S. can do or that the U.S. should do to improve the lives 
of ordinary Venezuelans. And so this is very typical of what you're saying. The fact that the media does not present the full picture of what sanctions mean and what their impact is, then leads itself to presenting these these very piecemeal measures. I mean, if, if we're talking about these, these recent developments, I mean, it was just allowing Chevron, I mean, imagine that, you know, the, the, the self-proclaimed champions of the free market need to allow an oil corporation to talk to another, to another government or another corporation. That was one. And the other one was, again, allowing two European companies, Repsol and Eni, to to, to lift oil cargoes from, from Venezuela. So this was another example. You know, here you have two corporations. One of them is Spanish. The other one is Italian. And for some reason that no corporate journalist is going to question, they need permission from the U.S. Treasury Department to trade with the, with the third country. So again, just, just to go back to the earlier point, the fact that uh, the not, not only the impact, but the scope of U.S. sanctions is never fully presented, it also leads to these, you know, subsequent misrepresentations where these very limited measures are really overstated as some kind of easing of sanctions. Yeah. And that quote from Gonzalez and Bloomberg that you raised, I think, bears repeating, Ricardo. I was really struck by it because he did say, quote, the unilateral lifting of sanctions on Venezuela is not going to improve the lives of Venezuelans. And that's just incredible. But, you know, it squares with what we see uh, the U.S. do in a number of countries that it targets. So when we talk about sanctions um, to make it seem like these uh, uh, measures are only going to affect uh, the high up uh, officials and no one else. But we see the real material impacts of these uh, sanctions time and again. And I think there's a connection to this and the way that um, the leaders uh, of countries targeted by the U.S. are portrayed. They always there's this like this cartoon villain, uh, uh, evil uh, sort of boogeyman image that is cast upon the leaders of these countries, whether it's Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela, whether it's uh, Vladimir Putin of Russia, whether it's Ibrahim Raisi of, you know, Iran, whether it's Xi Jinping of China. I mean, you know, any number of leaders that we could name with all of their differences ideologically, culturally and so on. But what uh, they have in common is that uh, they've ran afoul of uh, the Washington consensus and therefore I have to be painted in this light. So once it's established that these people are just operating from, you know, sheer, you know, meanness and bloodlust against their own people or whatever, well, then sanctions seem okay if it's being directed at them. And so it's this strange sort of way that um, uh, uh, the, the stigmatizing and really the demonizing of leaders and their governments factor into these narratives as well. Yeah, I mean, that, that's always the, the starting point. And I mean, I was listening to you and, and, and you were listing all these leaders. And it kind of struck me that the the need to demonize these people as kind of cartoon villains or Bond villains or, you know, action hero villains is all it's, it's kind of a, a mirror image of just how poor American exceptionalism is, that American ex- exceptionalism will only function if your villain is so demonized and so reduced to this kind of pure evil uh, figure. And what you're, what you're saying is, is, is totally true, right? I mean, in, in the case of Venezuela, which I've uh, kind of I follow very closely, one of the most common uh, misconceptions that's kind of repeated on and on, and then once you repeat the lie often enough, it becomes background for other lies that, that follow, is that Maduro 
supposedly won the, the 2008-2018, sorry, uh, presidential election by a fraud. And, and I mean, there's this has been repeated time and again. There was never any credible evidence that this was the case. And yet, as you were saying, once you repeat this enough and you establish that Maduro is is evil, then of course the 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 U.S. is justified in introducing these sanctions that are supposed. I mean, I'm not sure anyone actually believes it to bring back freedom and and democracy to the country. But uh, what's what's most striking about this, and yesterday there was something similar about Russia, is that there are always these operators who assume that the consequences on, on the civilian population are some kind of uh, unintended side effect, when if, in fact you, you have some officials who often will, I don't know, either go, go off script or just have a, a moment of sincerity and admit that, you know, this is meant to produce hardship on the on the civilian population when in the hope that this will either trigger a military coup or the somehow I mean it, it's a way of, of, of collective punishment. Collective punishment is perhaps the most accurate way of describing what, what US sanctions are really doing to, to, to the people in Venezuela and in other places, as you were mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you raised that because that's really the point. Collective punishment of a country targeted by the United States um, that is put in place to make the economy scream, to purposefully increase the suffering of those uh, people in order to carry out regime change against the leader in question. In this case, Nicolas Maduro, the duly elected president of, uh, of Venezuela. You know what I mean? And even to the point of, you know, still uh, some some platforms still referring to uh, Juan Guaido as an interim president of Venezuela, something along those lines, which is just absurd as uh, Juan Guaido never had a shred of legitimacy in any way uh, in that sense. Sense. The only legitimacy he was given was his support by the U.S. and these Western nations. You know what I mean? And so ultimately, that is the aim uh, of the U.S. government is to try to push out these different leaders and try to bring about uh, a, a government that is more malleable and more sympathetic to uh, the whims of Washington. And if these governments refuse, well, then we see precisely what we're seeing in Venezuela and in far too many countries across the globe. But we thank you so much. Ricardo for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top up the hour. It is Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington. 
Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live right now for your viewing pleasure on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When at the top of the hour today, it's being reported that the Joe Biden administration will be sending an additional one billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine. That's right. One billion dollars with a B to Ukraine. Uh, According to the Associated Press, this will include anti-ship missile launchers, howitzers, and more rounds for the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, or HIMARS, that uh, the U.S. forces over there are training those Ukrainian troops to use. Uh, According to Biden, they will also be sending $225 million in uh, humanitarian assistance for things like uh, food, health care, medical supplies, and safe drinking water. Now, this comes, of course, as the Federal Reserve uh, has just announced that it will be raising interest rates by 0.75%, which is the most since 1994, as part of an effort to slow inflation with gas and food prices skyrocketing. The U.S. government has elected to send even more of our money to uh, an imperialist proxy war. So those are your tax dollars at work. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Kim Brown, a veteran broadcaster and the host of Burn It Down with Kim Brown, which you can watch on YouTube. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Both of you are incredibly awesome on the radio. I just heard Jackie list all the places you can hear by any means necessary. And I'm thinking Jackie could sell soul glow. (laughs) (laughs) Dog, I could be I could be legit rich. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a fact. Uh, uh, Jackie, she could she could sell water to a whale. Hey. But, you know, uh, <laughs> Kim, uh, you know, uh, it's been reported that the United States is actually poised to lift a covid testing requirements for people who are flying in to uh, the country. Uh, They will no longer need to show proof of a negative coronavirus test before boarding flights into the United States, according to federal health officials. And uh, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, are basically saying that the data and science are saying that it's no longer necessary. I mean, we do have a million dead people, but I guess I ain't no scientist, so I guess I don't quite know uh, the criteria. Now, according to Xavier Becerra, uh, Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in a statement, quote, this step is possible because of the progress we've made in our fight against COVID-19. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> if this is progress, Jesus. Um, okay, back to the quote. Right now, we have life-saving vaccines and widely available treatment effective against prevalent variants, preventing serious illness and death. The CDC continues to recommend COVID-19 testing prior to air travel of any kind and will not hesitate to reinstate a pre-departure testing requirement if needed later. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you need those right now. There's actually no good reason to uh, stop doing this. Um, I, you know, I'm definitely curious your your thoughts on this, Kim. I mean, I, it's hard for me not to see this as sort of part and parcel of this uh, uh, normalization project of COVID-19 that the U.S. government uh, uh, has been implementing here, basically trying to create like a, a vibe, like everything's back to quote unquote normal, when in reality, the rolling back of these restrictions could very well have a serious impact on how the uh, pandemic proceeds in the U.S. But uh, just wondering your top line thoughts on this. My pipeline thoughts are, that's how pandemics get started, started by the stupid people. And this is what happens when you lift all kinds of mitigations and testings in place. It, it, it's really troubling about this latest news about the uh, not requiring international travelers to test before they come here. Because as uh, we have seen in previous surges throughout this pandemic, what is happening in Asia will eventually happen in Europe and what's happening in Europe will eventually come to North America. And we're starting to see already currently the, the, the very clear evidence of this. So BA.4 and BA.5 are, are running amok let's say in Portugal right now, and we're starting to see increased cases in England as well. And part of what these normalization folks, these public health messaging people that are, you know, encouraging us uh, to just resume life and accept COVID as endemic, uh, one of the things they've been pointing to is that the death rate has been relatively low, or at least compared to when it was at its height during uh, previous points in the pandemic. And what they're experiencing right now in Portugal is not only an increase in these BA.4, BA.5 subvariants um, of Omicron, but now hospitalizations are on the rise. And as we've seen throughout the pandemic, death is a lagging indicator. So death might be low now, but three weeks from now, six weeks from now, nine weeks from now, what exactly will that look like? And the short-sightedness of the U.S. government and, by extension, obviously the capitalist system, which does not care if people are affected by this mass disability event that is the COVID pandemic, which, by the way, definitely still happening, <laughs> definitely not over. Um, we, we fail to anticipate the, the variants that breaks through and kills people who are already vaccinated, which we're already starting to see evidence of that as well, where vaccinated people clearly are contracting and passing along the virus. Uh, but as we're seeing increased people who are vaccinated get very sick in some cases and die, vaccines and vaccinations, unfortunately, are not the, the magical silver bullet that the CDC and the Biden administration wants you to think it is. And the failure to reinstate any sort of transmission mitigation efforts, indoor masking, bringing back free mask testing, free mask um, vaccinations and, and, and boosters uh, clinics and whatnot, uh, we're not seeing any of that. And it's just kind of like, well, fit, fit for yourself, folks. 
This is a mass disability event. This has been a mass casualty event, uh, but everything's fine. And we're all supposed to participate in the dystopia as if the plague is not ravaging the globe still. And, you know, Kim, I'm glad you just said mass disability event because the people who are immunocompromised, who can not really cannot afford to contract this virus because of the damage that it causes to particular uh, internal organs. Uh, It can exacerbate existing diseases. I mean, people who were quote-unquote healthy uh, and who were hospitalized due to COVID and recovered, a pretty good percentage of them were shown to have developed chronic kidney disease or some kind of kidney injury. So there's, there's an aspect of this lackadaisical, oh, it's just an endemic. We don't need this, you know, to test people who are leaving this country and taking these germs all over the place. There's, there's, an aspect of this that points to what you just said, a mass disability event, not just not caring uh, about the damage that the the virus in whatever subvariant it presents itself does damage to uh, a certain uh, 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 vital organs and may exacerbate certain illnesses, but also it's the exposure of already immunocompromised people, people who are already weakened and have what people love to call all these comorbidities, that they're the ones who will suffer the most. And not just those folks here, Kim, but those folks in other countries as well. I mean, good grief. I don't think this, I don't think this, you, you can show how hateful and uncaring of humanity the United States is Aside from, you know, the fact that we drone bomb people and, and you know, foment coups all over the world. But, but we have decided that the virus doesn't exist, so we don't need to test to make sure Americans aren't spreading it to people around the rest of the world. I, it's, it's, it's more than a shame, Kim. I think it's criminal. It is criminal. I mean, it, it's criminally stupid because this is going to not only be a mass disability event for literally millions of people because it is estimated, and the numbers keep fluctuating some, but roughly one in five of about 20% of people who have contracted COVID will develop some form of long COVID. And what to what extent that looks like, as you mentioned, Jackie, one aspect of COVID is damages kidneys. There's another uh, part of it that you have more than a 33% increased rate of, of developing blood clots vascular issues, brain fog issues. Now we're seeing uh, neurological problems. You know, as, as, as much sometimes as we don't like to uh, point to pop culture, uh, I, let me point to Justin Bieber because I thought this news about Justin Bieber was really interesting when he released this video with his facial paralysis. And what he said to have had is something called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, uh, which is an offshoot of shingles. Justin Bieber's 25 years old, guys. I mean, I know it's not unheard of for 25-year-olds to develop shingles, but it is pretty, pretty rare. And his wife is also very young in their 20s, and she has experienced a number of strokes. Uh, and, and this is not normal. So imagine uh, the, the Hollywood elite, the glitterati of Ken and Barbie are having these issues. Um, what do you think that what how this impact is, is going to be borne out upon regular folks who have to still go into work every day 
and still try to power through what many are discrediting as mild symptoms or even outright saying that long COVID doesn't exist. Uh, so this, this is going to be ugly for us in the short term, for sure, but definitely in the decades to come, because so many people are going to be uh, incapable of, of going to work, possibly even caring for themselves. And as we see the raggedy nature of the American healthcare system right now, it is certainly not prepared to deal with with worse or outcomes. Yeah, and you know, I was also just thinking, Kim, you know, the role of the CDC uh, and how they've been showing up in the time since the pandemic. And I'm sure people who listen to the show have heard me say this before about how the CDC has basically just, I mean, ruined any real sense of credibility that they had beforehand as they're just so clearly um, easily manipulated, whether it was how they were bullied by Donald Trump or how, you know, they were swayed by airline uh, uh, corporations to, you know, shorten the quarantine time so we can get more people, you know, sitting on planes and going places without masks now at this point. And, you know, particularly when we, uh, uh, particularly liberals who, who always like to say, you know, to these like, you know, right wing kind of anti-vax anti uh, uh, sort of mandate type of people that, oh, well, you just got to trust the science. And I swear, I even see that like on these different, like, you know how people stick like a Black Lives Matter sign in their uh, front yard or put like a coexist bumper sticker on thing. Well, now I see these signs that say like, in this house, we believe Black Lives Matter, no one is illegal, believe the science, and so on and so forth, and all these other sort of very broad things to, you know, imply that you're a progressive, forward-thinking person. You know what I mean? But how can we believe the science if the people in charge of the science aren't trustworthy? And the truth is, the, the, the reason, at least in my opinion, how the anti-vax movement in the United States, which has been around for a long time, but has been at the fringe for most of its history— the reason why it's been able to grow is because of the deep mistrust in this uh, uh, government, which I think we've seen expressed in a number of ways. But given particularly how this pandemic has played out, it seems that that uh, mistrust has been deepened. You know what I mean? And so if you take a look around, if we remember like the early days of the pandemic and just how scary it was. Because we didn't know anything. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't exactly know the nature of it. We just know that, you know, I, I remember before before it got real, people were like, oh, I don't know, you know, it'll probably last a couple of weeks or something and, you know, we'll be right back. Well, that's because to this day, and I've uh, uh, raised this before, to this day, there still has not been even the most rudimentary um, public education uh, program around COVID-19 and all of that. There was never even any attempt to explain what the thing was. And so in the absence of that, we get all of these conspiracies and junk science and people drinking horse medicine and all kinds of nonsense. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I could ramble all day about this, Kim. But what what's clear is, is that, uh, you know, the, these institutions that we're told we should put our trust in uh, 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 seem to not actually be that trustworthy. And that lack of faith in these institutions, I think, seems to be feeding the kind of social decay that's eating away at the fabric of this country right now. When there are people who are so-called conservatives are on the right. And I find myself like kind of in the Spider-Man meme, like, wait a minute, are we agreeing on Dr. Fauci? Or are we agreeing on Rochelle Lewinsky? Like, I don't like this. I do not like this. But at the same time, uh, 
points have been made because at the bottom line is that the CDC at the onset of the pandemic, I mean, it was very obvious, very clear manipulation coming directly from the Oval Office. Donald Trump uh, was was massaging, let's be generous, uh, messaging coming out of that agency. And people were fully aware that misinformation in some form or fashion or manipulated data or, uh, you know, smudged recommendations, like we, we were aware that we weren't getting the total and full picture of this. And if you remember back at one of the CDC briefings, remember when they used to do those? I guess that that's that's over and done with. Uh, no, no, no need to brief the people about the plague any further. But I remember uh, Dr. Burke and uh, Dr. Fauci uh, were there with with Trump, and uh, and the the suggestion was. Obviously, that that if people injected themselves with a bleach, <laughs> that, uh, that that was a, a plausible solution, which we know uh, was was actually attempted by some of, of the Trump supporters, which is hilarious uh, to this day. And uh, the other part about uh, some of those briefings uh, were, were the fact that um, initially the, the high number of projected deaths, I think, were around 100,000 to 250,000. And I remember Dr. Fauci being really appalled that we could possibly reach such a number. And now we have clearly gone way past 1 million because I think the reported number is somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1,000,005,000, which to this day I do believe remains an undercounted number because a number of states documented, proven, reported upon in New York State and Florida, just as two examples, were deliberately undercounting COVID deaths, miscounting COVID deaths. Uh, and we've seen a number of stories come out from places across the country where this was happening. Uh, so really a million is probably on the low side. We really don't know how many people we've lost to COVID and how many people that we uh, are, are continuing uh, to lose to COVID. Because again, there is a, an, an invested interest seemingly uh, by our government agencies to, to diminish uh, the true extent of, of what this pandemic is doing. And I don't think that the CDC can really ever repair its reputation in the eyes truly of everybody, regardless of their political stripes, because I feel as though people on the left and people on the right as well uh, are looking at y'all like, seriously, like, there's no way that we could ever accept what you're saying. And this is why the monkeypox thing has got me so concerned, because I've seen the way that American government and our, our, health, uh, our health leaders policy leaders, messaging leaders have handled COVID. So what expectations do we have that, that we're getting accurate information about monkeypox? Uh, we're not really getting advisories about monkeypox, despite the fact that the infections are increasing. And I don't want to be, you know, alarmist about it, but Sean, I mean, I was kind of like how you described at the beginning of the pandemic. I remember February of 2020 being in the office and at the meeting, you know, everybody sitting around the table maskless, not not knowing what was to come in just a few short weeks. And everyone's kind of talking about COVID. I'm like, eh, you know, the flu kills a lot of people too, right? I, I, I was that person to start, but I quickly got got right and got on board and understood the, 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 the seriousness and the true gravity of this pandemic that we're in now. So monkeypox. Yeah. And I mean, I understand your concern about um, monkeypox and how, you know, the, the U.S. government doesn't really seem to be taking it seriously or even really uh, talking about it. Because the fact is, for years, 
scientists have been warning that uh, there is an impending you know, new pandemic on its way um, just because we know that this happens every so often and that the United States is you know, woefully uh, ill-prepared to actually handle it. And those warnings weren't heeded. And wouldn't you know it, that next pandemic came along and we got what we got, which is why we're in this situation right now. And so this, this, this country, this government, really this capitalist system, um, doesn't seem to want to move on things like these until it's, it's basically too late. And then what they do is horribly uh, inefficient or insufficient is what I mean to say. And that's really the finer point I wanted to get to is how uh, uh, the machinations of the capitalist system are precisely why the pandemic played out the way that it did in the United States with, uh, 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 you know, uh, Big Pharma and these other uh, medical companies uh, basically more concerned with, um, you know, uh, making a buck than actually saving people's lives, which reminds me about a newsletter from the uh, Tricontinental Institute for Social Research back in July of 2020 called Corona Shock and Socialism, which which profiled the way that socialist countries handled uh, 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 COVID-19 and how they were able to have the success that they did. I mean, it covers Cuba, Vietnam, Venezuela, Kerala State in India, which is under the leadership of a communist party. And um, I want to drop that link uh, in the, the by the means necessary chat here. And I encourage people to check it out at tricontinental.org, because when you look at what happened in these countries and then swing a look at what happened in the wealthiest country on Earth here in the U.S., I think you'll see more than a little bit of difference. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here at Jackie Lukman, and as always, we are your guides for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kim Brown. And sorry to take a, a serious pivot, but I just saw this article in The Hollywood Reporter. Apparently, Netflix is set to come out with um, a reality competition show Based on Squid Game. So, wait a minute. No. Yeah. Um, For a record setting $4.56 million. Jackie Lukeman has thoughts. (laughs) I can tell. (laughs) I couldn't even get it out. You're like, wait. (laughs) For people who have seen Squid Game, um, I certainly hope they intend to amend the rules of Squid Game considerably. <laughs> Otherwise, there could be lawsuits <laughs> involved um, of coming from the survivors. <laughs> I just, everything does not need to be, it, everything does not need to be live action. Everything doesn't need to be, just don't. Yeah, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the 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 main writer, the main creative force behind that show was shopping it around for some time, but didn't have a lot of success because of like the the class and political commentary that he was trying to make with it. Precisely. So now they take that and flip it 
to a reality show where you can get over $4 million. It's just so interesting yeah. how that happened because you even saw, like, you know, rich people throwing parties themed Squid Game. I'm like, I think y'all missed it. Missed it. Just <laughs> completely missed this this man. I can't remember his name, but he, he, he did. He shopped that idea around for 15 years. And the whole... The whole story is uh, an excoriating criticism of uh, capitalist society and the crushing debt that people in in Korea sometimes uh, are under, um, and and you know the links that some people feel like they have to get to go to to get out of that debt, and and now it's it's a money making venture of a reality fo- show for Netflix, and ain't that just like capitalism? Dang. Yeah, that's 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 wild. Well, we have a caller on the line here, Wesley. Tell us what's on your mind. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to comment on earlier the $1 billion given to Ukraine after we've already given $40 billion. You know, it comes to my head, especially living in a state like California where housing prices are ridiculous, um, homelessness is out of control, uh, gas prices are through the roof. Could you imagine what we could do for, for example, the homeless people in this state with $41 billion? Imagine how many homes we could build, how many just, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous to me. We have all this money to invest in Ukraine, but we have no money to invest in us. Anytime we want health care, education, oh, no, sorry, that's too expensive. But, you know, checkbooks are open for Ukraine. And in reality, you know, from what I've been seeing on the news, it's either 200 to 2,000. One of those two numbers, Ukraine is losing in its military per day. Like, they are not winning this war. They are getting their butts whooped. And at this point, the U.S. is just throwing more money at the dragon, and it's not even spinning out fire anymore at this point. I mean, it's just so so pointless to me. I mean, in your guys' opinion, uh, what do you think we could do with $41 billion? You know, and for example, even in the D.C. area for you guys, what do you think you got, we could do with that if we weren't just wasting it on Ukraine? Great show, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you, Wesley. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, you know, you make the point about homelessness. I mean, in Washington, D.C. alone, there's over 17,000 vacant uh, uh, housing units. Meanwhile, I mean, right here in downtown D.C., where uh, uh, Sputnik Studios are, every day there are uh, uh, people digging through trash cans for food. Uh, MacPherson Square, uh, one of the the parks near here, is basically one big um, encampment. You've got these. Uh, uh, you've got this company. I think it's called uh, Golden Triangle. These are the folks that you know. They bring out the nice tables and chairs for people to relax in, and they have the nice little performances. I saw one today when I was at the park uh, eating my lunch and it's a vibe and all of that but these are the same people that are like ejecting some of um uh, the homeless folks from these parks especially the ones that are now being you know renovated and very lush and they're hoping and you know they don't want to scare people away and so it's literally um an issue that should not exist here but like so many other things when housing uh, a, a human right and an indispensable human need are put to the interests of capital well then people have to suffer because under capitalism you don't have a right to a place to live you only have a right to what you can afford but Jackie Lukeman uh, what do you think about what could be done with this money man every public school would always have heat in the winter <laughs> and AC in the warm months, all the roofs the roofs would be fixed. Because every time, I remember going to Baloo in D.C., and every year it was either the roof was leaking 
or the AC or, or, or the heat wasn't working in the winter. Um, of course, yeah, everyone would have a home. Um, there would be no need for, uh, you know, special uh, uh, funds for, you know, raising money to get kids backpacks and that thing. All, all of the mutual aid. We, we could fund all of the mutual aid efforts and give the people everything they need, housing, Everybody's utilities would be paid. We, I mean, come on, $40 billion? And when you consider, when you consider, Sean, that the police budget in D.C. is a little over now half a billion dollars, 600-something million dollars just for the cops in this little city, Kim. I mean, and, and we know D.C. ain't that big, right? Right. But $600 million for the police, we don't—I mean, it would be great to have $40 billion, but we don't even need that much to solve all the problems of the people in D.C. If we could just not give the cops so much money, Kim, we could go a long way to addressing some of those problems. Absolutely. And uh, funny you mentioned D.C. police, Jackie, because there is a new report out today that despite the fact that the district— is about 46% black. Uh, black folks in D.C. account for 92% of the people uh, that police used force against it back in 2021. Uh, we're getting this off of ABC7, which, you know, it must be true. If ABC7, I think that's the Sinclair station in D.C., if they're reporting it, then it must be exceptionally egregious. Uh, no, your, your caller Wesley brings up an excellent point, you know, pointing the finger at Ukraine and then Jackie brilliantly dovetailing it together with uh, with domestic police funding. I mean, the militarism of uh, American imperial aggression is directly tied to the way that we fund uh, and, and train and resource our domestic police force. And it's really shameful because defund the police is a very clear policy mandate. And yet, when we see repeatedly when cities, states, and municipalities defund their public school system, defund their public health uh, uh, services, like, that's never controversial. It's just something that's kind of accepted. Oh, of course, uh, Mayor Eric Adams is going to cut a billion dollars from the New York City public school system. You know what I'm saying? But, but you can never, ever, ever take a single penny away from NYPD. So it, it just goes to show what this country's priorities are. Um, it's interesting to me that Fresh water is among the things that are that that these U.S. Uh, government dollars are going to Ukraine to pay for. Well, I'm sure all the residents of Flint, Michigan, so mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people in in towns around this country, Baltimore City, still experiencing high levels of of lead contamination in drinking water. This is still the case in a number of, of Baltimore City public schools. So America funds what. It's, its desires are, what its priorities are, the things that it truly values. And we know that's not uh, life in, in the betterment of, of quality of life for its residents. It's the expansion of this empire. But the problem is uh, you, can't, you can't keep expanding the empire and capitalism can't continue to grow because eventually it's going to cannibalize everything, it, America included. So, um uh, America can continue to prop up other states 
at, it, at its own peril as it collapses at home. Yeah, definitely. A couple of other things that stuck out to me about Wesley's question was he was talking about how all this money going to Ukraine is pointless. It is pointless if we're operating from the premise that that money is being sent to actually help Ukraine defeat the Russian uh, military, right? But as I think you state, as he stated correctly, um, that really doesn't seem like much of a possibility. We're told in the United States that uh, Russia is losing, but I actually think that the narrative around that is starting to to crumble a little bit. And the reality is, it's quite doubtful that Ukraine could defeat uh, uh, Russia, no matter how much money the U.S. and uh, the West sends it. And so it's pointless in that sense. But the the point, the real point is to, you know, drag this proxy war on as long as possible and to bring uh, Moscow and Washington ever closer to an open conflict. These two nuclear armed countries, which could have devastating consequences for humanity and the earth itself, if it were in fact to go down. And Jackie, you mentioned sort of the support of, um, you know, uh, mutual aid projects. I mean, the, the, the government itself could be responsible for these, uh, for these needs, these goods that people have, because that's the whole thing about how these mutual aid networks have, um, expanded and kind of exploded in the time since the pandemic, because there was just a complete absence of uh, people who who needed very basic things. And also because the government refused to support people in the way that uh, uh, it could have and should have, because it has the money and resources to do so. What it doesn't have is the desire or the will to actually help the masses of uh, uh, poor, working and oppressed people. And Jackie, you also mentioned the uh, uh, sort of horribly uh, bloated um, D.C. police budget. And the thing is, because for folks who may not be aware, it's it's election time in um, Washington, D.C. Uh, we're going to a primary sometime soon. And, uh, you know, people are running for mayor, including the incumbent, uh, uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser. And it's funny because she's been very clear that she um, is against this idea of defunding the police. At least she's honest about that much. She ain't honest about much, but she was honest about that. But now she seems to be running this narrative that somehow like the police were defunded and, you know, uh, like crime shot up and now we got to give the cops more money. That's just a lie. And we see Democrats doing that really all over the country. This was the whole point of them attacking the defund the police phraseology movement, the politics of it and all of that, because they're saying, well, you know, we defunded them and now look what's happening. It was not uh, defunded in, in most cases, to be absolutely sure. And so this is just a trick bag that they're trying to stick us in. Even these so-called progressives uh, like Muriel Bowser, although I don't know how progressive you can be when you supported Mike Bloomberg, a billionaire who was Mr. Stop and Frisk himself. But we've got another caller on the line here. Erica, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, peace, peace, Jackie, peace, Sean, uh, peace, Kim. I was listening in, and um, yesterday marked uh, one month since the Buffalo shooting, and uh, what I've been speaking about with comrades and, and friends is that, you know, that story seems to have sort of died down, um, not in the same way that we see with the Uvalde shooting, and a lot of the reasons that we've been pointing to is, the direct connection with the what's happening in Ukraine. Um, it seems like uh, they're, they're wanting to dilute it or um, not make it as uh, as serious as it is. 
um, especially in the context where we see the Uvalde uh, shooting, um, the complete mishandling of police as they're still getting funded, um, and that being, you know, we're getting wrapped around in, in culture war about guns. But there is no fixation on exactly what happened in Buffalo. And, you know, we're still giving our tax money away to Ukraine that's directly connected. So I just wanted to know if uh, folks had any thoughts on that. And again, peace. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot, Erica. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Erica watches us uh, every day, has even been a guest on the show, so we appreciate her so much. Uh, Kim Brown, your thoughts? So to the extent that um, the the Buffalo Shooters coverage has sort of fallen out of um, mainstream media cycles, um, I think that some of that is absolutely intentional because of the connections um, and the, the ideology that the Buffalo Shooter articulated uh, online and in his social media offerings. But uh, it, it, you just notice how when it comes to these white mass shooters, it's never an examination of, um, but, but, but what about the fathers? Like, where was his father? Where was his parents? And th- in the same way in which uh, when, when black people, period, <laughs> men or women, um, are, are trotted out in the media and, and criminalized, for, for things that they did or may not have done. Uh, it's always uh, an, an, a condemnation of the community at large, and this doesn't happen with white shooters. Um, and I, I have questions. I want to know where the in-depth you know, stories of, about this boy's family. How, how was he uh, radicalized, possibly by his parents? Um, what his parents knew to the extent that he was plotting uh, this mass terrorist event in Buffalo, specifically against black people, um, the, you know, y- y'all know me- mainstream media is not interested <laughs> in answering these questions because um, the idea that white supremacy um, continues to be a a national security threat, even though I will say from this administration and not really the last administration, but I've heard them at least somewhat sound the alarm on even somewhat recently about the possibility of increased domestic terrorist uh, mass shooting incidents for the summer, um, especially during Pride Month right now, with one example of which we saw in Idaho over the weekend. Um, So I I would agree with Erica. I agree that all these things are connected, um, but we just have no expectation of, of mainstream media outlets uh, making these connections, because um, that, that, that's not the narrative that they're interested in telling. And I know if Jackie and I have kind of talked about this uh, slightly on the on the Remix Morning Show on Black Power Media, but it's like, when is the Washington Post, you know, 10-part t- expose on the, the Nazism in the, in the Ukrainian military and the armed forces and in their government in the ways that we have blatantly supplied these Nazi-affiliated white supremacists uh, with guns and munitions. And I'm curious, also, I I don't think all those guns and munitions and javelins and all that stuff, I don't think those things are going to remain in the Ukraine. I, I don't don't be shocked if they somehow mysteriously end up in North Africa or deep in the continent. You know how these things go. Like, these billions of, of, of weapons, you know, sometimes they don't go to the, to the intended recipient or, you know, whoever the intended recipient may be, but they find themselves 
um, and, and make their way to other conflicts. Uh, so that that's something that I think we want to be looking out for also. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, what, what you're saying definitely has merit because, I mean, it, it's been reported, you know, by CNN and others that uh, the U.S. can't always be certain where these weapons actually go when they send them. If I'm not mistaken, I believe they quoted some anonymous officials that called it a calculated risk. That's all. I mean, it can't be that calculated, giving uh, uh, the devastating potential of some of these weapons. But be that as it may, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Back to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukman is here. The Kim Brown is here, and we have another caller on the line here. Mary, tell us what's on your mind. Hello, everybody. What is on my mind is I'm a 68-year-old black woman who is fed up. I have waded my life through racism and fought gallantly and won. I have made sure that I stick to the facts and find them. And what I have to say is I need for you all to run for office because that's the only way we're going to win in this country. Because what's in office now is gone. They're bought and paid for. You all tell us every day what's wrong. And what's wrong has been wrong for the last 35 years. And they're going to tank this country. The wealthy uh, oligarchs will tank this country, and they don't give a damn about us. But right now, I would love for Smootnik, Specifica, everybody, all of y'all, please run for office. Because that's what we need. Because we already been listening and listening and listening to the troubles. We need solutions right now. Or I believe there's going to be some serious anarchy in the streets, and I will be one of them. That's all I got to say. Thank you for listening. Peace out. Well, thank you, Mary. I appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you uh, again soon. And I'll just put it out there. I am definitely willing to be the campaign manager for the Jackie Lukeman, uh presidential run, uh, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, whichever, whichever organization she chooses to run. But, you know, the funny thing about it, the way that electoralism uh, uh, functions in this country is precisely designed so that folks with uh, politics like ours don't get anywhere near uh, that kind of thing, <laughs> which is precisely why. You know, I think, you know what I'm saying, we should be sure to really build uh, people's movement and join organizations if we haven't already, because I think that that uh, will make all the difference. Uh, President Jackie, your thoughts? <laughs> you know, all it's going to take for me is to get up to the mic and say Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, and I'm done. <laughs> I mean, that campaign is over because we we see what happens when so-called progressive politicians uh, uh, give even a, a cursory uh, uh, meal 
mealy-mouthed, uh, weak support uh, to Palestinian liberation without saying that completely. Um, you know, and then <laughs> my own pastor will get up there and start preaching about how, you know, Israel's existence is against the very tenets of God. And we, oh, it's it's the, the disappearance of the Lukman campaign will go down in history as probably the fastest and the most uh, complete takedown <laughs> of a political campaign in, in, in political history. But but recognizing the points at which the people will be countered when we do engage the system, because I do believe there is absolutely a place for radical people-led political um, uh, uh, parties and political uh, um, um, uh, engagement. But I think we are more effective in the short term, in the immediate term, at the local level. Because I, 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 that, that's where I look at, you know, political parties like Ujima People's Progress Party in Maryland. And, you know, even what uh, uh, Brother Mutakim is talking about doing as part of the um, and spirit of Mandela Commission, uh, the, the, the build the people's Senate. Yes, it's a Senate, but it is, it is building on uh, localized grassroots uh, organized units of people to create this, you know, these governing bodies built by the people at the local level. And I, and we have to start there. So if we're not willing to, I say this all the time, if we are not willing to go door to door, and I know we're in the middle of COVID still, I don't care what they say, Kim, COVID is still happening. I know we're in the middle of COVID, put your mask on, get your, get your, your organization materials. First of all, join an organization. And and get steeped in political education. Get your materials, go door to door, have events, invite people, talk to the people in your neighborhood. If we're not willing to do that, then we can't do things like run for office because we're not our platform isn't based on anything that is a foundation solid enough to withstand the attacks that we know are going to come, Sean. Definitely. And I wanted to be sure to uh, get in this this uh, uh, clip here because, you know, a big part of our issue is, you know, leadership or what passes for leadership in the United States and um, how they're not only obviously beholden to the uh, class interest of the capitalist class, but in so many ways just simply seem unfit. And there was an interesting moment uh, uh, about this recently when Don Lemon, of course, a, a presenter for CNN, had on White House Pre- uh, Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre to discuss uh, uh, Joe Biden and a potential presidential run. And uh, uh, Don Lemon basically asked a question about whether Biden was, you know, is in any shape to do so. And I want to play this cri- clip real quick quick to, to get her response, and then we'll come come back and chat about it. Does the president have the stamina, physically and mentally, do you think, to continue on even after 2024? Don, you're asking me this question. Oh, my gosh. He's the president of the United States. You know, it, he, I can't even keep up with it. We just got back from New Mexico. We just got back um, from California. Uh, that is, I, 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 that is not a question that we should be even asking. Just look at the work that he does. Look what he's, how he's delivering uh, for the American public. Look, that that what that 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 article that we're talking about is hearsay it's salacious that's not what we care about we care about how are we going to deliver for the american people how are we going to make their lives better that's what the president talks about that is his focus uh, and that's where we're going to continue uh, to to focus on 
Boy, Corinne, she was boy, she was stumbling and fumbling, wasn't it? She was, she was, uh, she was befuddled. That was a performance. Yeah, gobsmacked and dumbfounded. She could not believe that Don Lemon would dare ask her something like that, talking about she can't keep it. Let me tell you something. If you can't keep up with Joe Biden, you're either comatose or actually dead. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, you know. But uh, Kim Brown, your thoughts? My my thoughts are 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 these. I'm very glad by any means necessary radio exists. I'm glad Burn It Down with Tim Brown exists. I'm glad Black Power Media exists because I cannot abide by this detachment from reality and this sort of uh, obsession with presenting things as as though they they are not what they actually are. I applaud Don Lemon for actually asking this question. I think that this is a very rational and obvious question that needs to be posed because what we're not going to do, Madam Press Secretary, is pretend as though your boss is out here hitting it on all cylinders. Very clearly, he is not. We have seen Joe Biden tottering about in public events, just trying to shake hands with walls, uh, you know, not being uh, very audible or very clear. And this is absolutely not a diss to, to the elders at all. But, you know, mental clarity and sharpness is not evenly distributed uh, once, you, once, once we are past a certain point in our lives. And Joe Biden is very clearly demonstrating that. And to pretend as, as though the contrary or even suggesting that is somehow like, oh, my God, like this very... <laughs> the top dramatized reaction as if it's a preposterous question uh <laughs> i have to i have to kind of laugh at, at the absurdity at her being you know taken aback like how dare you don ask such a question he only fell down the steps twice <laughs> up he fell up the steps to air force one twice <laughs> <laughs> i mean the wild thing is though that what she actually said, though, in her response, aside from, you know, the fact that she's, you know, feigning this 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 outrage or, or whatever at Don Living as, uh, asking, you know, uh, if 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 Biden is actually alive, really. <laughs> it's like weekend at Bernie's in the White House. <laughs> and she's, you know, framing this thing like oh, she can't keep up with, you know, basically just shy of, of of a reanimated corpse. I mean, the fact that she said, look, just look at how he's delivering for the American people. Delivering what? He just delivered $54 billion to Ukraine. He just delivered $54 billion of Americans' dollars to Ukraine to prop up their society in the proxy war that his administration is waging in Ukraine with Ukraine against Russia. What's he delivering for the American people? He didn't build anything back better. The, what, what's the infrastructure bill doing? Is that building anything back? Did, did student loan, y'all student loan debt been canceled? Mine has not been canceled. What What's happening? What What is he delivering for the American people that she was so giddy and, and giggly about. I don't understand. Whatever they're giving him to keep him running, I think they slipped her some, and it just made her a little lightheaded and silly. Yeah, and, you know, I, I want to say this to any young people who might be uh, listening to this and who might be, you know, caught up in this concept of, uh, uh, quote-unquote, having a seat at the table and, and may feel 
uh, some admiration for Corinne Jean-Pierre. I mean, this is a young black woman. She was born in Martinique, which is news to me. For, I mean, I assume she was uh, a Haitian. But according to the New York Times, she was born in Martinique, living briefly in France before her folks immigrated to Queens, New York City. And so uh, a, a seat at the table, yes, it means that you get to have this platform and you're on TV all the time and you're visible and isn't that great because representation matters, but you can only get that seat if you're basically willing to completely uh, uh, forfeit the idea of advocating for the needs of the masses of your people and your class. The only reason why there even is a Corinne Jean-Pierre or a, a Colin Powell or a Barack Obama or a Kamala Harris or a Linda Thomas Greenfeld or 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 a Austin at the Pentagon or any of these black or any other uh, oppressed groups that are uh, that have a seat at the table in the Biden administration is because they are fully and completely willing to advance the project of U.S. imperialism. And if you're not willing to do the same, you ain't going to get no seat. Therefore, I'm here to tell you that uh, uh, this notion of a seat at the table or, you know, this kind of petty bourgeois notion of black excellence is completely empty. It's completely hollow. And we have to struggle for uh, uh, something deeper. We're conditioned in this country that, you know, we should only be concerned with individual striving for individual material acquisition, just the getting of stuff as opposed to the uh, uh, collective effort of a struggle for the liberation of the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people. And I feel like Corinne Jean-Pierre, you know, ascending to be White House press secretary is just another moment, Jackie, where we're supposed to feel, you know, like, oh, it's this historic thing, which, yeah, I suppose it is, you know, technically speaking, but uh, 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 supposed to feel like it's going to be of some benefit to us when really, I mean, this woman, though, she, she's just another mouthpiece for uh, uh, the, the CEO of the United States. It just happens that she is a black mouthpiece. You know what I mean? And and particularly, I think the cynicism in uh, but but the craftiness of uh, the Biden administration in choosing her in particular, because look at her youth. She's a very young black woman. So she appeals to the millennial. Sean, she's young. She's youthful. You know, she's bubbly. She's giddy. She can tell these lies about the empire with a fresh outlook and a lovely smile on her face and a lilting voice. And come on now. It's all an act to make the Biden to make the Biden empire, which is, you know, the same as the Trump empire, to make it palatable for that younger generation of folks who, again, are being crushed by those student loans. And her bubbly demeanor is supposed to make that so much more better. A couple minutes left, Kim Brown. Anything you want to get here? Yeah, I mean, Sean and Jackie, don't you guys know that if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu, guys. Come on. You have a seat at the table. And, you know, uh, I don't, I don't want, it, it's hard for me to, to have takes about the first Negro blah, 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 because it's like uh, I, I look at it two ways. Obviously, you know, people have personal accomplishments, this, that, and the third. I, you know, I can only I can only imagine, you know, what, what she must have experienced as a black woman, as a black uh, queer woman as well, going up the ranks of uh, the, the Democratic National, you know, committee in politics, da, da, da. Or maybe she was fast-tracked. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really uh, 100% clear on her story or her 
Um, but, you know, we have to stop being placated with the, the first Negro whoever because it's not uh, because of a lack of talent, not because of a lack of ability. Uh, these same liberals are the same ones discriminating against black people out of these positions historically to begin with. So Joe Biden and his administration you know, really seems to have this first black woman kink, right? I mean, it started with Kamala, moved on to Katanji, and then here we are with Corinne. Kate. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. I mean, you know, uh, we're no longer impressed with black first. We're only interested in black liberation. We'll see you tomorrow here on Biden Bees Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., and we will see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.